welcome to Work Interrupted, a podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking what next. I'm Christina Patterson and I'm talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today I'm delighted to welcome Daisy Buchanan, award-winning journalist, author and host of the chart-topping podcast You're Booked. She's written two brilliant works of non-fiction, How to Be a Grown-Up and The Sisterhood, has written for almost every national newspaper and magazine, and has been an agony aunt for Grazia and a columnist for The Pool. Her first novel, Insatiable, is a sizzling, funny, tender portrayal of a young woman's search for love and lust. She talked to me about money, sex and ambition. So welcome to Work Interrupted, Daisy. I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the podcast and I love your new book, Insatiable. It's filthy, hilarious, touching and so, so beautifully written. It recounts many of the challenges of being a young woman navigating life and work in her 20s. One challenge it doesn't mention, of course, is a pandemic. How shocked were you when it hit and how has the past year been for you? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Well, first of all, thank you so much for your incredibly kind words. And I think, you know, we're here today because I'm such a huge, huge fan of your writing. And I think you write so beautifully and brilliantly. So it's a real, I can't tell you how touched I am to hear that. It's lovely, isn't it, on a podcast where people just gush each other for the first 10 minutes. Um, I know people love to hear that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's been a strange time, very strange to um, be promoting a book with lots of orgies and absolutely no social distancing. <laughs> it's kind of the opposite of social distancing, I think, a lot of what goes on in Insatiable. So um, I was talking to a friend about this the other day and about the, the toll it's taken and it feels like it's been a year, it's not quite a year, but, you know, going from that, those early sort of mention. well, I suppose it's the year since, um, mm. you know, last February, people saying, oh, have you heard about this coronavirus? And me thinking... Oh, don't be so silly. That's not something I've got enough to worry about without worrying yeah. about that. And, you know, how glad I am, I suppose, that I didn't know then that this has been a period, I think, of really, really, for me, having to learn to live in the present because the alternative is just sort of unbearable. And that's not to say for a second that I've been the sort of magic Zen master who's dealt with it well. Um, <laughs> I've definitely caught myself just panicking and you know really having to dig for those mental tools to think no you you cannot think too far into the future because um it, you know there's it's the first thing we do I think in any when we want to control what's happening and we have no no control at all and you know I do have um lovely memories that I hang on to that make me really joyous and um, very good friends had a baby in the pandemic mm. and so we've been going for socially distanced walks with them and there was mm. a brief respite in the summer where we went to their back garden for a barbecue I think that was allowed there were six of us um, I think it was all it was okay in Kent at that time and that was you know one of the greatest days of my life and all of those mm. you know jewels of, of time um, every Sunday night my family has a weekly zoom chat and I wonder whether we'll just do that forever now regardless of sort of how much time we can spend together or not it's become a really nice ritual but also I've been fed up and overwhelmed I spent lots of time just I think that weird disconnect between facts and feelings and when the news has been at its absolute worst having those sort of moments of 
you know, thinking, no, this is when I'm brave and courageous and I find the things to to distract myself and work through this. And then when nothing much is going on, just sort of, you know, bursting into tears mm. and having these periods of just being completely exhausted and feeling deranged. Um, Philippa Perry, the psychotherapist, said something incredibly wise on Twitter about how we feel a feeling and our brain creates a thought to match. And that's what often gets us into trouble. And sometimes mm. when I am feeling that low and searching for a reason why and trying to rationalise it, I think of uh, Philippa's tweet and I just find it deeply comforting. I know that you, like me, are a very gregarious creature and you know we both love parties and dinners and all these things that are not possible anymore. Do you think that's had an effect on your on your personality or thinking at all it's certainly the longest I've ever gone without uh well the longest all of us have gone but you know my whole adult life I've been out most nights so it's quite a shock for me how how do you feel that you have adjusted sort of psychically to that something I'm really struggling with at the moment is getting dressed I have been someone who works from home oh um, it's almost 10 years um so it'll be 10 years next year since I sort of went freelance and embraced this this scruffy life and the thing about um the way I, I'm being a writer as well and being sort of intensely visible maybe five percent of the time I'm mm. either in a ball gown or pajamas and <laughs> you know I love dressing up I love the fun and sort of theatre and performance and I really you know I don't think anyone else sort of cares or notices necessarily and also I have been, until now, allowed to maintain some sort of illusion of glamour because whenever I've been seen, I've been quite done up. And at the start of the pandemic, I think on Instagram, there was like a dress up anyway hashtag. And there were lots of people who were like, Friday night, I'm going to put on a ball gown and do this. And I do try on at least once a week, I will put my contact lenses in and put makeup on and wear sequins to have dinner with my husband we'll even get to the table and sort of move off the sofa in our laps to that um but yeah I'm really I think struggling and you know someone would say well just you know put some clothes on put some makeup on and you'll feel better I did put makeup on for this conversation of not knowing it was so entirely I. audio um but there's something about it that does sort of sap a spirit and you know I think as well especially now in the winter I think I found the beginning there was lots of sunlight I'm on the Kent coast you know I was sort of running and it was new as well I think the novelty was weirdly sustaining that it felt that there was a shared shock something that I think I found very comforting and it, I'm not sure that it's okay to say this that there were like there was a, a brief sort of six-week suspension of all FOMO. No one mm. in my life that I followed and loved and mildly envied, which is a lot of people. That's a big group that covers. There was no one out doing, you know, fabulous things because there weren't fabulous things to do. And not, I mean, yeah. I've never been much of a one for thinking, oh, you're in Barbados and I'm not and it's not fair because I think, well, I could... I, I, like to go to Barbados at some point I've never been um but definitely definitely work stuff and career stuff and that feeling of there's a sort of 
mad scientist in my brain who amalgamates everyone into one sort of giant achiever. And it's like, oh, oh, everyone else in the world is getting four book deals a week. What have you done lately? <laughs> and there was a yeah. period of that not happening because it couldn't happen for anyone because the world stopped. And now I'm, um, and I thought, I'll never envy anyone again. But um, yeah, that's, uh, that's my fear anymore. <laughs> Well, it, it, exactly that. It's interesting. You wrote a brilliant piece at the end of last year about how last year led to your workaholic reckoning. You said, for years, I've been anxiously circling a kernel of pure shame, not wanting to hold it up to the light and then feeling even worse because writers are not exactly key workers. I think many of us have been feeling that sort of both not productive enough and entirely non-essential. Can you say a bit more about the, what you were saying in that piece and how you've managed those feelings? I am lucky in that technically there has been nothing really to stop me working bar my own brain and bar various magazines and newspapers slashing their budgets and things not being distributed in the way that they are and you know I've had sort of books to work on and things but so much of writing is thinking and that is very very nebulous and I do and I think it's you know from school this idea that it's better to do you know uh, if if you're able to open your eyes instead of sit upright you should be working I should be working and I find it really really hard to shake that off and I have lots of like weird shame and twitchiness about money as well and again I've been really really lucky in this pandemic where you know there has not been a point where that has been a a present concern you know like I know it's always a present concern but I've not been in the position that millions of people have of just you know being able to or genuinely being scared that I couldn't keep a roof over my head but there is always that and I think I suspect most freelancers have that anyway it was like well this is fine, but I might have nothing for the next six months or 18 months mm. or five years. Um, and certainly making the transition from a writer of journalism to a, a writer of books, um, that's difficult as well because there's a real sort of brief bankable burst of productivity you can prove to people. It's like, you know, if the teacher's coming round or your dad's coming round to be like, well, what have you got to show for yourself? You've been lazing around. You're like, no, 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 look at all these bylines. I'm I'm a productive member of society. It's fine. And um, I've been trying to write my next novel at the moment. And it's, um, I had a flurry of good stuff over Christmas. I've now, or I had a flurry of writing what's worse before Christmas. And now I'm in that space of, I can't write a thing and I don't think that what I wrote for Christmas was quite what I hoped it would be and I don't know what to do with it and I know from every single writer I've read about and loved I know this is very very much a process and you sit around and think and figure it out and certainly with Insatiable I wrote a lot I got stuck and I remember thinking I have no idea how to end this how can I end this what am I going to do and I nearly made it a very different book for the sake of finishing it and then I was struck by the ending and I was walking um, along the seafront on a very windy, rainy day with Morrison's Bags for Life really digging into my palms. And I was grumpy and I think I'd maybe come from the gym, remember that, and sweaty and wet and cross. But I thought, ah, it's all about that, that character who I thought I'd have to rewrite in one particular way to make her fit. Actually, she was 
she's very different from what I realised and this is what's going to happen. And I think it's so hard with any sort of creative work to just give yourself the space to do it. It's a lot like running and I'm still learning this. I'm a slow and reluctant runner, but I do run. And I didn't run really until I was about 30 because I thought, oh, you just have to peg it until you feel sick. And I can peg it until I feel sick for about three seconds and then I'm just going to die. And actually, you know, the running is, it's plodding. It's going really, really slowly. It's stopping as often as you need to. Um, And I I can't think of a better metaphor than that. Mm. Very interesting that the, that obviously I'm not going to give, the ending away uh I absolutely adored the book it's just so so funny and beautiful and sexy and tender just loved it but it sounds as though you saying that you kind of discovered the end quite recently so does that mean that you embarked on the writing of it not knowing where it was going which which must make it quite different to the non-fiction books you've written so far yeah, I mean, I always wanted to write a novel because, you know, like you, I think I love reading, I love fiction, not in any kind, I just want to, with a caveat that, I do not want anyone to think that I'm very clever or very learned or I'm doing this sort of good, studious hobby. I'm just, you know, Daisy, can I just say, can I just say, you are very, very clever and you are very, very learned and you're one of the most well-read people that that I know and I, you know, and I barely know you. So can I just correct you as an older woman on that front? You mustn't say those things. It's for feminism. Yes, you're right to correct me. I, I do read a lot of things, but I do, I think that people are sometimes push off reading or there's a weird there's a snobbery and an inverted snobbery and I think especially now and I think in a way it's wonderful that um we share so much about what we read on social media I worry I guess because I think as far as um hobbies go I can only think of one off the top of my head that's cheaper and more accessible than reading. But um, <laughs> probably don't want me to mention that in your podcast. Although I, think it's, come up. I think it's one of the things. <laughs> of the <book. laughs> but you know, it's just, it's supposed to be for everyone. And the books that I love that have brought me the greatest comfort and joy. It's, you know, Julie Cooper, I just wrote something, a, a piece, uh, Indie Best about the eight best Marion Keys books. And as I was writing, I think with a writer like Marion Keys, you can't ignore the fact that critics have not always been kind or respectful or accurate. And I think this woman is writing these sort of devastating and profound emotional truths and she's Trojan horsing them into, you know, the pink books. And that this idea that's totally false, that, like, that people think it is somehow feminist to dismiss the feminine where I think it's the most anti-feminist thing you can do and those books because they have been published in that way they've reached so many people who've needed them and loved them in mm. so many ways I read Rachel's Holiday I think I've read Rachel's Holiday every year since I was about 12 or 13 and I think she's so you know she's a master of her craft the, the technical what she's able to do in writing and details and character and actually I, anyone who wants to um, write a novel, I would say I've never ever done any sort of creative writing course. Um, I think some are really great. I think they're good. I think they're really good for kind of accountability. I think you learn so much, but I've 
my creative writing course has been rereading the books mm. that have made me feel great and you know that's um sometimes that has been Jane Austen and trying to think of other sort of literary approved writers um I'm looking at my shelf and not um not seeing very much uh Ziri Hispet I love uh Dame McGinnery it's Angela Carter Ellen Ferrante but it's studying loving and studying Julie Cooper and Marion Keyes Sophie Kinsella and how do they how do they do how do they make you feel the book how do they write those books where you don't necessarily remember plot point by plot point but you do if you reread them regularly but the emotions that they invoke and the the wisdom they bring forth and the way they mm. stay with you for long after you have read them that's all I have ever wanted to do as a novelist and obviously that was why when I sat down to write this mad idea I had with no ending I had no idea what I was doing but it was a, a story that sort of had to burst forth and I think I'm always probably going to be the kind of writer who figures things out on the page I think I make much more sense writing than I do speaking and I wonder if that's why I'm having trouble at the moment because I do sort of know what's going to happen and I do have certain points and notes and beats to hit um and I think that the courage of you know the courage of being able to change your mind it's vital for writing and vital for life Mm, absolutely right absolutely right so sex is a very big theme in the book and I'll get on to that later but so is money the fact that Violet the central character who's working for some kind of art startup and earning peanuts is barely scraping by and living a life much more precarious than her parents generation who had free university access to cheap property etc etc people who are economically secure have no idea what it's like to worry about money all the time but so many youngsters seem doomed to a precarious life what effect do you think this is having on your generation and also the kind of how you feel in a relation to wider society oh for me when I was at my brokest and I think it's getting worse it was just the, the biting biting anxiety and the inability to plan and dream and I, I mean I'm 35 36 in a couple of weeks um, oh. but you know, for people in their 20s now, I mean, I'm, the position I'm in now, which is, and this is how, no matter how well I'm doing, and how, you know, wealthy I become, you know, have yachts in Monaco, and all the rest of it, I will never feel as rich as I do, knowing I can always, well, for for some years now, I've always been able to go to a cash point and get some money out of it and not mm. fear that my card will be swallowed. I can know, I can pay for something and know that if there's a problem with the card, it's a problem with the card. It's not a problem with me or the bank. And I can wear disposable contact lenses and I never have to, and I know that's not very environmentally friendly, sorry, but I can, um, but knowing I don't wear disposable contact lenses every day, but that I could if I wanted to. That makes me feel like a millionaire because they were the tiny, tiny examples. So it's very difficult to live when you, can't, I mean, a trick I used to pull was always going to um, M&S because M&S felt safe. 
safe in a way that Sainsbury's doesn't. Um, not that Sainsbury's is unsafe, but you know that it's a M&S was my Tiffany's, um, and getting as much cash back as I could, and mm. buying lots of batteries and you know little tiny things I didn't need but would sort of come in useful because with cash back you can have that and it will it's slower to catch up with you than you know the, if you can't if you don't have the money you can't get it out of the wall if it's a card transaction you've got a few days now and those sort of like kind of artful dodgery tricks and mm. I should really stress as well I was broke I was never poor you know if I got really 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 stuck I had parents who could help and parents who did help not that I felt you know comfortable abusing that or being you know the I had enormous amount of shame and anxiety that I felt about you know when I was bailed out but and also that all like looking for places to live and admittedly doing it in London and there are lots of people who say well you could just move back home you could move to another place that's cheaper you could do this but always living in the place that was the cheapest but not being able to live in the place that felt the safest or the warmest or the most secure or the most like home mm. and when I think about what that is doing to a generation of people I mean because it's a I think those feelings sort of leak out of us and circulate and grow and you know virus style mm. really that it's very much one thing being broke and rackety and cheerful but knowing and believing that you know your moment will come that because there is a lovely point I think before everyone's maybe 25 when like you're all broke you all you know you go to each other's houses and you have dinner parties and it's like it's a chickpea curry <laughs> just mm -hmm. more and more and more chickpeas and you're you know <laughs> drinking that sort of that wine that you know tastes a bit funny and makes you all psychotic the next day and everything's you know a bit of a game and it's that I could put up with this for another year or five years if I knew that was all I had. But there was a moment for me, for sure, when I was about 26, 27, where everyone else seemed to be sort of, you know, like getting promoted and moving and also, you know, forming successful romantic relationships and that they were sort of, it was like, you know, going on a really windy, rainy, chilly freezing walk but knowing you can come into a warm house and I thought oh they're all going into the warm house now but I'm I am now Leo in the Revenant I'm never coming home I'm never coming in mm. Mm. well as you know I, I when I was 26 I was unemployed and single and, um, and definitely feeling outside the warm house so from that point of view I can certainly uh, empathize but I but I do think the ongoing insecurity and the fact that uh, you know, property ownership is out of, is a kind of wild dream for a generation in a way that it wasn't for my generation. I think it's just utterly unfair and yet another source of structural inequality. I mean, it's interesting, in, in The Insatiable, Violet meets a wealthy couple who treat her with casual cruelty. And it made me think of Scott Fitzgerald's Careless People. Um, and you, of course, are named after one of his most famous characters. Was Gatsby in your mind as you wrote that? 
I'm so glad you said that because the the carelessness of money that absolutely absolutely was and you know I think it's so resonant because it's true and I've seen that I've never been in a sexy throuple wish I had um, <laughs> there was lo- I think that as well that lots of me writing this it wasn't me writing what I knew at all but writing what I'd sort of dreamed about but um at that very insecure point in my 20s I was briefly dating having a bad effect I don't know what you call it dating kind of dignifies it with too much meaning um I had an association with a much older man who was very successful and there was a real power imbalance and the way he talked about money and the way he used money always made me very, very uncomfortable. And he really presented himself as someone who's very sort of, you know, liberal and right on, but left leaning and, you know, a sort of spiritual socialist. But, you know, he loved, uh, I hate so much when people use this expression, he liked the fun of things in life. You know, he was very, <laughs> I think he did enjoy his wealth and the comfort it brought him but also he was casually so snobby and he'd say lots of things in passing where um I remember him saying something about like the lottery had brought out this it was like a scratch card or a game and it's called like set for life or rich for life and it's like you get I think 30 or 40 grand a year tax-free was the prize a life-changing prize for Mm. nearly everyone and he said something like, you know, well, you wouldn't be like rich for life, would you? You'd just be sort of mm. comfortable. And at that time I was earning about 15 grand. And mm. and I just felt so, you know, I didn't even have the energy to feel angry. I just felt really like crushed and grubby and humiliated. And, and of course, um, obviously sex features very heavily in the book. And beautifully, it's I've never read. Sorry. Um, I said it's mentioned the sex is mentioned. <laughs> it's mentioned fleetingly <laughs> I've never read so many I don't think I've ever read so many and such explicit uh sex sex scenes and just fantastically done I may have done when I had to review one a, a 50 shade of cliche book um which I absolutely hated but it, it is beautifully done um and of course it's you know part one of the central themes of the book is about sexual desire in a context of complicated feminism where Violet feels guilty about her sexual desire um, and all of this is complicated by online porn, social media sex, me too. Presumably this was part of the challenge you set yourself to explore the complexities of sexual desire at a, at a time when so much has changed. It's true that was really part of the prompt and when this story came to me um, I was actually when I started writing I'd gone away to try and write um The Sisterhood which is the last book I wrote and I was waiting for my sisters thank you so much I was waiting for my sisters to say it was okay to write a book about them um (laughs) and this and while I was while I was waiting I thought I just this is something I want to kind of get this down and and see where it goes and I'm so curious about this this story and what it might be but at that time, it was October 2017, and while I know uh, Tarani Burke, who kind of founded and heralded the Me Too movement, it had been going on for a while, but that was when it really, I think, blew up on social media. And I was off social media. 
I was trying to concentrate and which I found it really I, of all my troubles and addictions and problematic behaviors that I've wrestled with and reckoned with from you know food and alcohol and shopping and things I've learned to enjoy in moderation social media is still the great challenge for me mm. um but to get the headspace to to write about that I don't think I think if I'd been on Twitter and if I'd seen me too blowing up it would have killed it entirely but definitely that was a time when every time sex and women were in the news it was about sexual violence and exploitation and rape and the most you know horrible devastating sort of soul-crushing things happening and of course they should be reported on of course that's a huge international urgent urgent problem that is nowhere close to being resolved but I just felt as though you never hear about desire and that's what I wanted to see. And I wanted to see a woman who was, you know, thinking about it and dreaming about it and yearning for for that sex, not just her being sort of successful at the sex, if that makes yeah. sense. I, I think it's a very, very brave book to to write. Did you have and do you have anxiety about it coming out? <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Um, I think <laughs> as I wrote it, I had to liberate myself from it and just pretend to myself that it really was an experiment um weird comparison to make possibly a troubling one that would do me no favors but I think about you know Nabokov writing Lolita and firstly I am in no way Nabokov secondly that's a really really complicated and challenging book and it is so mm. beautifully written and I loved it and I don't regret reading it and loving it um I think if Nabokov had had any sort of you know, of the self-awareness that most of us have. I don't think he would have written the lead or sought out a publisher for it. And, <laughs> you know, I don't, I, I, I hope and think my book is very different in many ways, but I think you're only, it only ever counts as being brave if you're scared. I'm, mm. I'm really scared. I had to write this in that sort of headspace of being divorced from the realities of what might happen and in fact because I'd not I'd written it and written and got stuck and I had about 50,000 words I didn't look at it for maybe as much as a year and in the meantime I'd written the sisterhood and I'd sort of done some ghostwriting and my agent was saying like, what next what next and I kept sort of saying oh I've written this book but I don't know if it's anything and it's 50,000 words so it might be babbling nonsense and she and this sort of went on for a bit and she got really quite fed up with me and thought for goodness sake just send it to me sent it to her and this vast, and I remember as well because it was enormous and it had to go as like you know in google don't do it as an attachment it's like a document and so I didn't really I didn't even look at it I was just like fine have it and then maybe a week later I did look at it and think oh my goodness she is going to fire me for being a pervert <laughs> I will spend oh. the rest of my life unrepresented but it really really could have been you know, one of two, I think the material would have inspired an extreme reaction one way or another. Happily, she was into it. <laughs> well, it's, I, I do, I think it's, it is a brave book and it's absolutely brilliantly done. And I think what you're saying about owning your sexuality as a, as a woman is so important and so powerful. But, you know, in the sisterhood, you talk about owning your ambition you know how it's still bad to be bossy how you as the eldest daughter of uh, six six girls um you know were often regarded as the bossy one and I 
it, I think it's still often seen as shameful for women to own their ambition. And it's a fact that most of the power is still in the hands of middle class white guys. How would you sum up the key things you've learned about owning your ambition as a woman? I think that the thing that I've struggled with the most, it's not me even being ambitious for myself. It's the idea of being seen to fail, of setting big goals and not meeting them. And then this, the chorus of people who I think will be still around going, oh, I can't believe you thought you could do that. I can't believe you tried. Like the, It's so much better and so much harder to aim as big as you can and fall horribly short because even then you will have got somewhere and you will have gone somewhere um I think that we we get confused about what ambition is and I think I am still wrestling with the idea of me you know what I want to do and what I want to be seen to be doing I suppose. And I, you know, actually, um, over the last few years, I've had a real kind of slow burn freak out. Um, when I started, you know, I left like Bliss magazine, which I adored, um, to start being a freelance writer. When I was at Bliss, I had one ambition and that was to be an editor. And I wanted to be an editor because that was the next thing I didn't want to be an editor at all because now I know I know what editors do. All I really want to do is write. I'm rubbish mm. at everything else. Um, and you know, being an editor would be hell. But I was, you know, think no, no, it's it's better. There's more money, and it just sounds better. And that's what I should be doing. And I felt very, very envious of all the people who were sort of, you know, my age and doing it who weren't me. And I also felt just a bit, you know, pathetic and desperate and like it was sort of beyond my reach. Then, to my shock and surprise, I I left Bliss, and I left because my editor at the time said, you know, we're making cutbacks, have you thought about going freelance? No bit of me thought I had any hope of succeeding in this. I was already broke, and people would say helpful things like, oh, so you better have um, lots of money saved up because you'll find it hard to get work straight away. Like, oh, lots of money saved up, great advice, thank you, I'll go and... <laughs> Where? Where do I get lots of money? Um, and at the time, I was writing on the side for free for a website called Sabotage Times and doing bits and pieces and just writing jokes. And I was doing it because I wanted to, you know, I was looking for other jobs. No one called me back. Um, I was pitching freelance things. No one ever replied. And I was like, at least here... Here I have an audience. I know if I had a blog, no one would read it. Here I can find readers, maybe. And here I've got a lot of freedom, if nothing else. So I found my voice. And at first I tried to sound quite cool. And I gave that up as a bad job after about two and a half articles because I can never sound cool. And then I just started, you know, writing as many jokes as I could and being in, as inventive or ridiculous as I could. And I sort of chanced into this one-page column writing about um not a review much more of a catch-up where I was sarcastically summarizing what happened in Maiden Chelsea that week and I think it was taking something that was deemed frothy and paying a serious 
amount of attention to it while making as many jokes as I could. And I learned so much. And that was where I sort of, I found my people. And, you know, from then on, I've, I was visible in a way I hadn't been before. Um, it was a time when I think it was possible on Twitter to be noticed in a way that I think is maybe much harder now. And suddenly, you know, have people who had just ignored all my emails were getting in touch and saying, oh, could you write something for us? Could you do this? And like, for years, like, opportunities kept just coming my way. The Chelsea Collins came out as an e-book. I was asked to write a dating book for a tiny advance. But still, I was, you know, like, utterly gobsmacked. But I also lost my way. I was in my late 20s then. And so like full up on all of these possibilities that people kept presenting me with and you know my my rowing boat was it was a, a really fun storm to be in but it was a storm and I lost sight of the idea that I could have ambition that I wasn't just waiting for someone to give me permission and validate me and say we want you and I'm still dealing with that and the after effects of that and it became apparent quite quickly and maybe it all came to a head when I briefly, um, very briefly worked at the Sunday Times style, which is where I'd wanted to work since I was 17. And I I hesitate to say nervous breakdown. I don't think that's what you call them anymore, but I did and it wasn't their fault at all. It was the wrong job for me. I was being an editor, bad, bad job for me. Um my absolute anxiety and acute imposter syndrome and everything had been really building since it started. It came to a sort of frothing, explosive head. And you know, I was like, a back to the ocean analogies, it felt like a, a full, you know, wipeout, I felt like I was drowning. And then mm. in the aftermath of that, I, when I wrote How to Be a Grown Up and wrote the proposal, and it was horrible writing the proposal, it was awful. I just was so, thinking, I've taken a, a week off to do this, and I've gone away on this sort of writing holiday. And what if it fails and no one wants to buy it and I've you know I've been doing I've made my job into everyone wants their hobby to become a job I am here making my job into a hobby and perhaps I should have just gone on a nice holiday Mm -hmm. um and I had no belief in it at all um and then I think when that you know eventually got published and also with my podcast your books um that was thank you very much you've been a wonderful guest and that was really very much, your book was sort of born out of me, looking at all of the people with podcasts and, you know, people being asked to kind of do them for for brands and things. And I think me and a friend, there was a possibility that we were going to do a sort of a sponsored thing for someone and that fell through. And me just sulking, like, no one has asked me to start a podcast. And then if I want to do it, I'm going to have to do it. And maybe that's what I'm learning about ambition, that it's not, it's more to it than just saying, I want to do this. But you have mm. to do the thing. And most of doing the thing will be feeling like you're in the dark, stumbling and stumbling, going, this absolutely isn't working. What if this doesn't work? And maybe that was never, more, you know, because I'm not sure if I should say this on the eve of the novel being published, but how to be a grown-up in the sisterhood not big sellers you know they were moderate people people like them people very nice about them I you know still get lots of lovely messages about them I'm delighted to have reached the readers I've reached but there was a real crushing 
anticlimax and I felt really ashamed and scared and insecure after they came out and touching all the wood so far I feel as though Insatiable has had the most positive response yet mm. but you know really sitting down and and that's writing as well and that awful oh I have to be ambitious enough to want to do this even when I don't feel successful at it well, I, I have no doubt that Insatiable will be a huge seller and deserves to be. But, you know, it's so interesting what you're saying about that kind of stumbling in the dark, which I think is what most freelancers end up doing, really. And most people and most youngsters wanting to have a kind of creative or semi-creative life uh, or work are going to have to put together some mix or portfolio or multi-hyphenate career or whatever you want to call it now there's no security it's often knackering so much of it's unpaid the hustling the emails the admin the selling the social media the profile building even the podcast yours has been very successful and it's brilliant and it must be a huge amount of work and it is now sponsored but I think a lot of people look at podcasts and think oh I want a podcast not realizing that generally speaking they're not really money spinners they're you know possibly profile builders or or who knows what advice would you offer to a youngster setting out on this kind of life now? Because really, people only notice the successful ones. They don't notice the people who are toiling away, earning pretty much nothing and completely burning themselves out. It's incredibly hard. But I think that if you were going to go all out, you have really, really got to love the, the doing of it, even mm. when you don't necessarily always love it. you just have to love it some of the time and you know certainly you know with your book yeah it's not a wage or, or a salary or anything it's we, mm. we also we do we make it as sort of as basically as as we can it's been a slow thing to grow anything creative I think you have got to make peace with the fact that there ain't much instant gratification and sometimes there is some instant gratification and it's lovely but it was also really destabilizing and when I've had those rushes of moments of oh my goodness this feels huge and it goes quite quickly from oh I feel I feel a bit wobbly and I feel a bit mad to I need more now why isn't there more and the, mm. the emotional management of yourself that you have to do you know you've got to you've got to believe it's worth it you can't you will you will never have a moment where you think, oh, all this pain has been worth it. If you're really lucky, you will have moments, as I do, with your book, when sometimes I come out of an interview, we just had Kate Moss, who was fantastic. I heard that. It was brilliant. She's so brilliant and She's you're so brilliant. so it was good. It was just, it was all her. It was such a nourishing conversation and I felt so uplifted and... I would say that, you know, nine out of ten interviews, you know, do feel that good. I've learned so much. Oh, the first year as well. That's the other thing. I I wasn't good. I really wasn't good. The first couple of series, I just, you know, sort of inarticulate and stammer. And I had a real like, oh, but like mostly this is people I I know, you know, or have like hung out with a couple of times. Like I think mm. when we had you on, you know, we'd been for lunch and stuff and you know, I was like, how hard can it be? It's a chat about books, lovely books. And it's like, no, it's actually really hard. Is it Malcolm Gladwell who says you do something for 10,000 hours? Yes. You're yes. a long way off 10,000 hours with your book, but you do 
have those thrilling moments when you notice something that you've done that you couldn't do before Mm. and I think it is a lot like running as well where week to week it sometimes feels as though you're getting slower and worse but month on month and year on year you are always getting a little bit stronger and faster and fitter. Now one of the themes in your book is about feeling the need to be nice particularly as you're when you're writing about sort of you know young anxious 20 somethings but also I, I would say one of the key themes is about the supreme importance of kindness Nice people can be walked over and if you spend all day answering people's questions on email, for example, and you're freelance, you'd never get any work done. I note that you have a very good automatic email message that tells people where to, you know, where to go <laughs> direct their, in- their inquiries accordingly, who to contact for different kinds of queries. Has it been a, a journey for you who are an incredibly kind and uh, generous person to um to sort of, you know, modulate that so that you can get on with your work. I feel like at this point I should say that this isn't a sponsored podcast. <laughs> this is, um, I've given Christina 50 quid, so Daisy is great. Um, <laughs> no, I'm completely genuine on this, as you know. <laughs> I think it's really, really difficult. And every day I learn something new about the boundaries I set. It's a big old cliche, isn't it, the boundaries? But really learning, like, boundaries are for you and for no one else you cannot control anyone's behavior you cannot use your boundaries to make anyone feel shame you cannot use your boundaries passively aggressively you cannot use them to broadcast resentment all you can do is say this is what I am prepared to do this is what I am unprepared to do yes and I know that in my head I am starting to know it in my heart I have a a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of sort of social media followers or whatever or or people getting in touch when you think of how now, you know, like when you see a name trending on Twitter and you've never heard of them and you're like, oh, Mm. they have shut down the city of Birmingham because 20 million people have come to see them um, (laughs) because they're big on YouTube. And, you know, I I struggle dealing with my tiny corner of the internet and I know that, you know, what other people, I know what it is to be online. And I think it says so much about the way humans, the way we crave connection and the way we just don't know how to ask for it. And again, maybe it's vulnerability. And I had something recently where, and it's actually, I think the second or third time it happened, I made a joke, not to anyone or about anything. It was a very sort of silly innocuous joke about, having a slightly rubbish day because something silly had happened and then someone replied to say well I'm sorry that this has happened to you but you know my day has been tragic for this reason and this reason Mm. and this reason and you know I have I can only imagine, and I do try really hard to imagine, how much pain you must be in to lash out in that way. That when you are, you know, going through that kind of tragedy and devastation, you do feel like you need to punch up. You do want to tear everything down. And Twitter, especially, is a place where we can just howl and show that frustration in a way that, you know, we wouldn't have room to do that 
anywhere else at any time but I'm not here to be anyone's punching bag I don't believe Mm. that that is fair and I do worry that what is happening this year has meant that we are so we need empathy we really really we have never needed it more badly and I want to be generous I think it's important but when I'm giving away what I can't afford and don't have that isn't generosity that's codependency which is something I have a tendency to I think that most people who've been raised and socialized as women probably do but I don't want to give anything away that I don't feel is you know I've got in my in my bag of resources because someone is sort of guilted or shamed or, or shouted me into it um if you have one realistic hope for something positive to emerge from this pandemic what would it be i was going to say huge amount of funding for the nhs and the cancellation of brexit and then i remembered you said realistic <laughs> maybe a deeper understanding of the fact that we all have mental health and of the fact that kindness is something that you have to do actively all the time Mm. and you have to be kind to yourself before you can you know it's kindness to yourself is petrol in the tank you can't run on anything without and also that it's that means so many things to different people and it's not just a a sparkly notebook or I think I think a lot about um there was a man in a local newspaper some time ago and he was I think he had been making saying the most vicious and awful things about Greta Thunberg and a local paper ran a news story on it and he complained and said that it was like his civil rights had been compromised or something but also his profile picture was like his face and the banner under it said be kind I'm like what is happening what is going on what is going on um Mm. and I do I worry that this call for kindness is something that we're all hiding behind and I want us to understand that it is complex and hard and you know maybe a little more flexibility or you know that we can't just use it as a banner Mm. I suppose and I I mean I think and I and something I really feel um get gratitude is something you know oh god gratitude here she goes but I day-to-day find it really important and really useful um and I really really notice acts of kindness in other people and they do not have to be big things at all Mm. it can just Mm. be you know a postcard or someone saying that they thought of you or I don't think I don't think this is me. I think it's very human that we all think, oh, but we've, there's a big gesture and there's nothing. And it's just, it's, the secret to anything good is like, it's tiny, tiny regular things. And also, you know, that kindness is how we'll all grow creatively. 
I don't think it's possible to create anything good or moving or interesting if you're constantly finding things and looking for things to be unhappy about. And then with that, mm. I think that at the moment there is a lot to be unhappy about. And if we are going to create, we need to be really compassionate with ourselves about the fact that it's hard and now might not be the right time. I suppose what I'm saying is there's this notion that we should have all written a novel during the pandemic, possibly about the pandemic. <laughs> I I don't like that. I don't want that. I think there are a lot of people who are feeling really sad and upset and frustrated and angry with themselves about how they've used this time. I want us to stop this notion that time is to be used wisely and well what we've learned this year is you know life is short but it's also really bloody long and Mm. being unhappy and being angry with ourselves and angry with everyone else about what we should have been doing and what we think we should have done just doesn't get it done all we've got is this moment as Michael Hutchins sang absolutely right that is that is so wise and inspirational actually thank you so much Daisy it's been a joy to have you on the podcast and I cannot wait for the day when we can meet for lunch or a drink or see each other at a party I don't know when that will be but I really can't wait I will be there with wine and crisps (laughs) excellent thank you thank you so much I really love this conversation Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share, rate and review it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. It really does help other people find it. Do follow me on Twitter where I'm at Queen Christina underscore and on Instagram where I'm at Queen Christina Writer. If you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended self-isolation reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and doing work that works for all of us. And I hope you'll join me again next week.